Thank you. Yeah, I'm green. Can you hear me? Hello? Good morning. Um, thank you very much for, for having me out here today. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. It's also um, a great help to be uh, supported in my pursuing of ordination, uh, which you are all helping me with today. So thank you very much. Um, I have actually uh, a relationship with Covenant Chapel. You've been very friendly to me and supportive to me through my whole pursuing of ordination. In fact, when uh, my church was in a, a bit of a crisis and there wasn't uh, a, a structure to support me for ordination, this church came to my aid. So I, I thank you very much. Uh, Doug just gave me a couple instructions about the sermons that you like. Uh, he said that you like them very long. Um, that you like syntax, you want to get really deep into the original languages, uh, and you don't like application, you want very, very, you know, lofty thoughts without a whole lot of, what can I do with this? So, um, I have here today, I think about a 75-minute sermon, which um, will take us through every parsed verb, Okay. No, I, I am, in fact, very humbled at the thought that I am here preaching uh, the crucifixion. Um, this is a, a holy ground, and thank you very much for entrusting this to me. I want to start today uh, by sharing with you the greatest moment of my life. The greatest moment of my life is not uh, attached to a world event, not attached to a, a national event. Um, it's not some accomplishment that I've had in school or in the workplace. It's not even the birth of any of my three children, as wonderful as each of those events are. It's not even the day I got married. It's not even the day that I fell in love with my wife. It's not even the day that I met her. Also, as wonderful as each of those events are. The greatest and most defining moment in my life really happened on an ordinary, completely unspectacular day in November of 2001. The greatest moment in my life occurred as I was getting ready for another day, which I can tell you absolutely nothing about. All I can tell you is, I was in the shower, and I was weeping. I was really weeping. The kinds of tears that you have to catch your breath, they're so deep. The kind of tears that if you don't hold on to something, you will crumple to the ground. I was weeping. And I had no idea, even a minute before this happened, that I was on the brink of such an emotional outburst. But I do know what I was thinking about before this. I was thinking about our text today. How I got to that moment is a bit ironic, I was in my second year of college, and as many college students uh, unfortunately do, I was in a, in a state of rebellion, in a state of running away from the faith of my parents. I was sure that it was malarkey. I was sure that it had nothing to do with the life that I wanted to lead. But I also knew that to make that decision, I needed to be intelligent about it. And so I had decided I was going to read the New Testament. So I had been reading the New Testament for about 30 days. And here I was in this shower, and it came down on me like bricks. I am a sinner, and Christ died for me. Jesus 
was crucified for me, a sinner. When I understood that, I broke down and I wept. I wept for my sin and I wept because by grace alone, I am totally forgiven. And so in that shower, in that very ordinary moment, I became a new person. And it is the greatest moment in my life. But you know what? Sometimes that moment, that reality that I am a sinner and Christ died for me, seems so far away. In fact, there are times in my life that I forget it entirely. I lose sight of it when my pride tries to tell me, you're not that sinful. You're not as sinful as that person. Or uh, perhaps I I get so caught up in in some crisis or some uh, moment of extreme gravity that worry and fear or confusion take me over and I forget Christ died for you. I get so distracted that I can completely forget the most defining thing about me. It seems that I am constantly battling the temptation to either deny the seriousness of my sin or to deny the truth and greatness of my salvation. And so, so much of my life is lived as if that reality wasn't true. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Can you relate? Do you struggle with keeping your focus on the gospel? Jesus gives a stern warning for people like me who begin to take their eyes off the gospel. Listen to what he tells the believers in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Ouch. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent, or your faith will come to nothing. These are sobering words. Jesus is saying a passionless faith is a dead faith. If our love is waning in our heart towards him or is becoming distracted by other things or our pride is choking it out, we are on a very dangerous slope. The challenge for us is clear. We must strive to keep our hearts aflame for Christ and his gospel. Has the passion of your first love waned? Do you sometimes look at your life and wonder, how far have I fallen from that moment when I first believed? Do you worry sometimes that the gospel is becoming distant or tangential to the life that you are leading? If so, please give your ears to me today. 
Give your mind and your heart to what this word says. Let your spirit soak upon this text with me. It is here that I believe we must go if we are going to restore ourselves to the love we had at first. Today's passage attacks the temptation that draws us away from our first love. It presents very clearly we are sinful and shows us far more sin than we want to admit. And it also shows us that God loves us and is more powerful to save us than most of us have ever comprehended. In fact, I don't think it's possible. But this text will recenter you upon your first love. We will see this truth laid out in three amazing contrasts today. But before we get to that, let us hear the word from the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter, verses 26. I do not have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible with you, you'll, you'll remember it better that way. Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, to the mountains, fall on us, and on the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was righteous. And all the crowns that had assembled in the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, 
watching these things. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I just pray for your spirit upon us, that you would remove any distraction, that you would remove any um, desire to close our ears or to check our phone or to schedule the next week, and Father, to listen and to hear with the deepest ears of our heart the message that Christ has been crucified. Father, I pray that you would just open us up like a sheet spread out on a table, that every part of us can be searched by your Spirit, that we would be called and desire a closer walk with you today. Father, I pray that you would anoint me as your vessel to preach your word. Remove any dross of my own invention. Let it, Father, be a true word, a word that has your authority in it. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to use a clicker now. I, well, I don't think that's working right. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, so you're going to have to listen to me instead. Something about the transitions weren't working very well. But okay, so as we look at this text today, we're going to see three contrasts of the crucifixion that, that reveals the difference between our hearts and God's heart. The first contrast that we're going to see is that the crucifixion reveals that we are bent toward evil. We are bent toward evil, and we see this in Luke 23, 26 to 31. The crowds in this, in this passage, they hate Jesus. They have already gone through the trial. They have already gone through crying out, crucify him. They have already gone out and chosen Barabbas, a murderer, over him. They have shown in every possible way their vitriol for Jesus. And here he is, so weak from scourging, so weak from their punishment, that he is unable to bear the cross. So they find someone else to bring it with him. And yet, the crowd's hate is nowhere close to satiated. They want more. They want all of his blood. And in the midst of this, we find these women who are following behind Jesus, and they are weeping and they are lamenting this mistreatment of Jesus. They are grieving for him. And Jesus stops in the middle of this gauntlet of ridicule and hatred to turn to these women and says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And he speaks then of the judgment that is coming, and he says, if this is what they do when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What Jesus is saying is, this behavior, this hatred, this wickedness, is what the people do in the good times. How much worse will they behave? How much more mean-spirited will they become when the bottom drops out? When the Romans surround and they have to fight for food, what evil will their hearts reveal then? Because today, today is a day of peace. Today is a day of comfort. Today is a day where these people are not being threatened with their lives. And yet, when they have the chance to take the blood of Christ, their hearts show that's what it's full of. 
Jesus is saying, this is the heart of man. Even in the good times, this is the heart of man. As we think about that, I think it's worth asking, is our heart also bent toward evil? We can look at those people and we can say, wow, how wicked they were. But what about our heart? The Bible tells us in Genesis 8.21, after the flood, after Noah, the righteous man of God, was spared and all the wicked people were taken away, after that, Noah gets off the boat and the scriptures say that God saw that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We took away every wicked man but one, and that one person was considered righteous, and yet his righteousness was still uh, tainted with a heart whose intention was evil all the time. The, the bent of evil in our hearts has survived the flood, has survived that judgment. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus tells us this, For from within... Out of the human heart come evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. These things don't come from outside of us. They come from within. Our heart has this in it. Now, perhaps we, we recoil at that. And I was thinking a little bit, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, the, the book of Proverbs is set against uh, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And there's this section where Lady Folly, the, the, the wisdom of the world, gets to speak. And she speaks a proverb. She says, stolen water is sweet. Stolen water is sweet. This is what Lady Folly says to people to draw them in to folly. Stolen water is sweet. Now, if you're honest with yourself, there's something about that that entices you. When something is forbidden, when something is told you can't do it, why do we want it? Why do we wonder what it would be like if we could have just one moment to do what other people say we can't do? Why is stolen water sweet? It is because our heart is bent towards what has been uh, described as wrong. Consider our hearts when we go and watch movies. You're just sitting in a movie theater and you're watching the action. And isn't it amazing how a movie director and producer can create a moment in a movie where your heart leaps out and says, lie, when the guy's about to get caught. Isn't it amazing that when the guy is trapped and there's no way out except going through a group of people, you say, kill them. Or when there's a gigantic heist, you root for the bank robber. Or when there is this beautiful, passionate kiss between this handsome man and this beautiful woman, your heart says, go to bed. That's in our hearts. Nothing has happened. But the movie has taunted us, has enticed us, and we find out in those moments, my heart is bent towards evil. 
Now, if our evil is less than what we see here in this passage, is it because we are better? Is it because we are better? If we had taken this congregation and put them in Judea, could the situation have been different? Was it just a matter of these people being there as opposed to those people? I believe the truth of the matter is we are no better. The only reason that our sin is not as egregious is either because we are blinded to it or we have been restrained. I got to visit uh, Jerusalem as a gift from my seminary after I got my first degree there. And in uh, Jerusalem is a Holocaust museum where they display all the stages that went through uh, taking the Jews and separating them and then moving them into the death camps. And it's a a decades-long, 15 years involved propaganda process. And it's horrifying to go through and see what was done. And you know what's most horrifying to me, what left, left me most unsettled? is what is different about me than Germany in 1935? What's different about me and a German? They were educated. They were were European. They had the Bible. They knew right from wrong, and yet they participated either actively or complicitly in this act. And I have to ask myself, if I were born in National Socialist Germany in 1925, What would I have done? I'm terrified to think. What if I were born in the antebellum South? Would I have been a slave owner? You know, there is so much evil we commit simply because of the time that we are born in. And there is evil that we are committing right now that we are simply blind to because it's acceptable evil. But there will be an age that will look back on us and say, how could you have done that? How could you have endorsed that? And we will be guilty. We are either blind or we are restrained. But our heart has the same potential for evil that we see breaking out right here at the crucifixion. But the crucifixion reveals our heart is bent towards evil, but in Christ we find a Savior of incredible compassion ready to minister to us as sinners and sufferers. We give Him our worst hate and He responds with unbelievable compassion. How astonishing in the middle of this gauntlet of hatred, Jesus stops and turns to pay attention to these grieving women. And to say these words, don't grieve for me, grieve for yourself. Jesus is more concerned about the woe that is going to fall upon them than the woe that is falling upon him. What kind of heart is that? In the middle of being tortured, you're worried about these people and what's going to happen to them. Jesus doesn't use his mistreatment as a ground to condemn these people. He uses it as the means to sympathize with them. He takes our hatred and learns sympathy. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus meets us as a fellow sufferer. Jesus meets you in your pain, in the cruelty that you have experienced, in the hatred that has fallen upon you, the injustice that you have endured, and he meets you as a fellow sufferer. What a beautiful Savior. He comes to you to give you the comfort and the strength that you need so that when temptation comes upon you from your heart bent towards evil, he knows how to call you out of it. When the scripture says, you will face no temptation that you cannot bear, it is because you have a faithful and merciful high priest looking after you. And he is there to comfort you in your griefs. He is not just there as a sympathizer. He has come and he has suffered to take our place. So great of a comforter is Christ that we can rest on the promise that on the last day, he will wipe away every tear. The one that we rejected will take your tears from your face. What a beautiful Savior. So we see in this first contrast, our hearts are bent towards evil. Have you seen that? Have you come to terms with what's really in your heart? And have you also feasted upon a Savior who is so full of compassion to love you even though you are bent towards evil? The second contrast. In Jesus' crucifixion, we find that we are at enmity with God. We are at enmity with God. And we look at this in verses 32 to 43. We see that the, the leaders of the, of the Jews are there, the Romans are there, and the criminals are there, and they all spew at him mockery and say, if you are the Christ, if you are the king, save yourself. They taunt and insult him. They put sour water in front of him. They take off his clothes so he must stand there naked, hang there naked. The, 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 the leaders of the Jews, they are saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself. They are there because Jesus threatened their status, threatened their authority. The Romans are there saying, if you are the Christ, if you are the king, save yourself, because Jesus pretended and assumed that he was the king. No, I am the king. And if you are the king, then save yourself. And the criminals the criminal at least, this one criminal, yells out, save yourself and us. He doesn't repent. He's not sorry for why he's on that cross. All he wants is to be saved. He doesn't want to be made righteous. So he is there, he hates Christ, because Christ's righteousness rubs him raw. Does this hatred only exist in the hearts of those people? Or is it in us too? Well, let me ask you. When someone comes along and threatens your comfort, your status, your control, your power, 
your ability to choose what is right for yourself. What does your heart do? When somebody says, you can't do that, you get angry. You get hostile. You vote against that guy. You throw a bunch of Facebook pages about how terrible that guy is. Our hearts hate to be repressed from what we want to do, and we become very hostile. And this is how our heart, which is bent towards evil, reacts to God's law. Listen to what Paul says in, chapter, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Hostile to God. That is the posture of our heart. We are hostile. His word is an offense. We make a major and grievous error to think that sin is just a mistake or sin is something that fits in the category of oops. Sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion against God. When we choose to do something that God says you are not to do that, our choice is an act of overthrow. We say we do not want you as our God. We'll do it ourselves. Consider the simple act of, of blasphemy, of profaning the name of God, of, of, of uttering the words Jesus Christ or oh my God in a unworshipful tone. What are you doing? You are taking the high and lofty and holy and special name of God and in your moment of self-righteousness are throwing it to the mud. You are literally taking something holy and making it profane. It is an act of saying, I and my words and my needs and my situation trump the holiness and the glory of God so much so that he is dirt. Every time we just say OMG with a trite and trivial manner, we are doing that in our hearts. So what does this mean? We have all participated in the rebellion that led to the cross. The cross was a particular act of man's rebellion, but we have all done our part, have we not? Indeed, I would say that when we choose our sin against what the Lordship of Christ says do or don't do, in that act, we are agreeing with the mockers. We are saying, let him hang. I want the affair. I want the sin. I want my own autonomy. Let him hang. That is what our heart, bent towards evil, is towards Christ. Have you faced this? Have you faced that your sin is not just an oops, it's a rebellion against God? And in response to this, not only do we see that we are enmity with God, but in response to this, in Christ we find a Savior of incredible kindness, ready to forgive. Instead of vengeance and cursing us upon that cross, what do we hear him say? He doesn't respond to the mockers with, I've got something to say to you too. 
He says, Father, forgive them. In this cacophony of hatred, he prays, forgive them. What an astounding, incredible heart. And then we have the penitent criminal who recognizes that he is not in the same situation as Jesus. He is there because he is guilty. And Jesus pardons him. Now this criminal was not on that cross for a small crime. This criminal did something big. You were put on a cross for murder, for treason, for uh, gross and abusive robberies. This man was on the cross guilty, and he knew it. He was a terrible sinner. And yet, Jesus rewards his last moment, his last moment where he cries out, remember when you come into your kingdom, he rewards that faith after a life of debauchery and sin and heinous and gross acts. He rewards him simply for his faith with paradise. With paradise. Paradise. Does that shock you? Is not that incredible? He had to do nothing right. He had to make no single thing. Uh, he didn't have to fix a single thing. From the depth of his sinfulness, he went straight into heaven because he put his faith in Christ. And all of his wickedness was replaced with Christ's righteousness. Is that not incredible? Jesus forgives and receives all of those who repent and trust in him, even the very worst sinners, even the enemies of Christ. Do you believe that God's forgiveness and God's salvation is that big? The sin that haunts you, the sin that you can't tell your wife or you can't tell your kid, the sin that you can't admit in your own heart is not so big that if you confess it, it will be canceled and you will have paradise. That is the size of Christ's incredible kindness. And the third contrast, in Jesus' crucifixion, we find we are guilty and deserving of judgment. We see this in verses 44 through 49. Jesus has died. And we, keep, we see this centurion. And who is the centurion? He is the Roman soldier who is in charge of seeing through the crucifixion. He's the one who is in charge of this whole thing. He made sure that the whips fell and they, they fell mercilessly. He made sure that the nails went in all the way. He made sure that he hung. He made sure that he was naked. He made sure that all of the ignominy of the cross was brought to perfection in this act. That's who the centurion is. And Jesus dies, and the centurion looks at it and he says, Certainly, this man was righteous. This man was righteous. 
What does that mean to say, this man was righteous? I crucified innocent blood. You see, in saying, this man I killed was righteous, he is saying, I am responsible. I am guilty. And the crowds who have participated, who have cried, crucify, crucify him. They watch Jesus breathe his last, and they stand there, and it's like all of a sudden, they feel terrible. They, they look at this, and there's no satisfaction. There's only this reality that this person that just died was beautiful and loving, and we called for his blood. And so they beat their chests. And I think what they're saying there is, what have we done? It's hit them. We are guilty of calling for righteous blood. But is this guilt theirs only? Again, if we could take you wonderful people, and put you there, would it have gone differently? If you could have been the centurion, would you have changed the course of history? We must face soberly the words that come from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where we are told, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The fact of the matter is, our guilt, our rebellion, our sinful heart is the reason Jesus had to die. Our rebellion is responsible for Christ's blood. There's no getting around that. If it was just you, take everybody out of this room, take everybody else out of this world, and it was just you and your heart to receive paradise, Christ would have died the same way for you. That is the truth that the Scriptures tell us. Have you come to recognize that? So in Jesus' crucifixion, we find we are guilty and deserving of judgment. But in Christ, we find a heart of incredible grace who bled and died to make peace for us. What should have happened when this righteous blood was spilled? What should have happened from God? That should have been the end for all of us. Mankind has killed the Son of God, His most beloved. That should have been curtains for every last breathing person. If aliens existed, they should have come to this planet and seen a desolation. Because what happened? These people killed God's Son. That is what should have happened. But what happens? This is not the ground of our final and fullest condemnation. 
This is the ground of our salvation, of our new creation, of our redemption. Jesus' blood, which we have on our hands, is the same blood that he has spilt to wash us clean. In God's mercy, the judgment that should have fallen on us was placed upon his son. He went through the darkness so that the veil that separates us from a holy God and us in our sin could be torn asunder so that we can have access to God as a loving Father. In Jesus, there is no more judgment. There is no more separation. Your guilt is paid in full. You are declared not guilty because Christ paid for you. And the last words that Jesus speaks, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, tells us that his death was not in vain. He had not lost his faith in the last moments. We know that he is the Son of God. Three days later, he is raised from the dead. But here's the thing. Most astonishingly, where Jesus goes is where we who trust in him go to. Jesus goes into the hands of his Father. He goes into paradise. And if you have faith in him, you go there too. Your faith brings you into the Father's welcoming hands and eternal paradise. Just because you put your faith in him. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So as we conclude, in the crucifixion, we find the depth of our sinfulness. We are bent towards evil. We are enemies of God. We are guilty and deserving of judgment. But thanks be to God in the crucifixion, we also find a God whose love is indescribably wonderful. He responds to our sin, rebellion, and guilt with incredible compassion, incredible kindness, and incredible grace. This is the gospel message. You are bad. You are a rebel. You are a sinner with the blood of Christ on your hands. You are far worse than you think you are. But you are also loved and loved more than you can possibly comprehend. You are loved so much that Christ, the Son of God, bled for you. In the cross of Christ, we find the freedom from the power of sin, freedom from our guilt, freedom from the judgment of God, and we find ourselves welcomed into paradise and into the joy of our Father in heaven. The Father in heaven sees us and takes joy over us just as he takes joy over his own perfect Son. You have a great salvation. A God loves you enough that he bled for you. How can you possibly question that he will take care of you through all things? How can such news not capture our heart and become our greatest love and our greatest passion? 
If you can hear this news and believe it with anything less than a heart aflame for Christ and a passion for his glory, what kind of response is that? Please heed the warning of Christ in Ephesus. A passionless faith is a dying and dead faith. Such faith is in danger of having the lampstand of Christ removed. A thought like that should make us tremble. We must repent of any apathy. Repent lest your fall become truly great. Have you received this gospel? Are you living out this gospel in your life by trust and obedience to Christ? If you are, then praise God. You are saved. Rejoice in your salvation and in your Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Such truths are, are incomprehensible. We see only a glimpse of but we recognize that your angels long to look into what we see today. And they have eternity, and they have full comprehension. And yet they continue to look at this with wonder. Father, forgive us, we are sinners. Far more sinful than we know. But Father, remind us that we are saved, we are loved. All who repent and trust in Christ I pray, Father, anyone here today who has fallen into apathy, fallen into a ho-hum view of their faith, would be shaken awake. And anyone here, Father, who has never come to the saving knowledge of Jesus would reach out like the penitent criminal on the cross and ask, remember me when you come into your kingdom. For all who repent and put their faith in Christ receive paradise and the Father's welcoming hands. Thank you, Father. In Jesus I pray, amen.